by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 137, verse 1. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Dowd. And I'm Stephanie Reed Meyer. And this is Off Script, a podcast where every week we take a deeper dive on last Sunday's sermon, talk about the theology behind it, and get a chance to discuss the parts that didn't make it in, the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. I'm excited to get started today here with Stephanie. Last week it was you and Reagan. And the week before. And the week uh, you before. You haven't done this series at all. Right. On the podcast, which seems right. really convenient for you. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm always willing to talk about uh troubling passages. And I was very bummed that I didn't get to preach on the one about Elisha attacking the kids or the bears attacking the kids. Yeah. I mean, it was funny when Reagan said her, her friends thought she'd lost a bet or had gotten in trouble and had to preach on that text. She kind of (laughs) did. Right. So, uh, yeah, everybody is healthy in my house again. So that's good. And how about your house? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Miles is still in quarantine because he's a tiny guy, so it takes a lot of days for that. Right. So I'm just like praying he's not exposed again. Yeah. That like restarts the clock. It's a whole thing. Dude. So Omicron is just really kind of taking a toll on the staff all, all of January. I mean, nobody's gotten too sick, thankfully. No, no, no. But we just can't <laughs> avoid it. Right. We've just been in and out of quarantine. And there's still people vulnerable that right. can get it. Right. Like it's right. not right. over. We'll knock on wood. Right. So okay. anyway, the, we're the, now we're talking about week three. Yeah, yeah. Of, I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? You know what that's from? What? No, tell me. Do you know? No. You know? I thought it was from the brain of Chris Dowd. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, uh, the, thank you for that. <laughs> what a pause. <laughs> I mean, well? I, guess, I guess in that I borrowed it from somebody. <laughs> Doesn't count. I'm tell actually, me what it's I'm from. I'm disappointed neither one of y'all know what it's from. I'm sorry. It's from what? Hamilton. So they're in one last time. Yeah. He says, I'm not running for president. Lynn says, I'm sorry, what? Huh. You remember that? No, know. sing it. Um, let's see. Not running for president. No, he goes, uh, Thomas Jefferson. There's a whole, whole thing with Jefferson. He's in trouble. And like, so Lynn Manuel or uh, Hamilton is excited because he's going to be able to call out Thomas Jefferson right. and say what yeah, he really yeah, thinks yeah. about him. Um, and then uh, Christopher Jackson or Washington says, yeah. um, I'm not running for president. And then that's when Hamilton says, I'm sorry, what? what? (laughs) Huh. I'm going to have to listen back. That's not like the words I have in my head. So I missed that. I did miss that. So uh, I went to see Hamilton in November with Mm -hmm. some friends from the church. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so it was on stage. Right. And we were already thinking about, you know, the series and trying to think of what to call it. And that's when that was the moment of inspiration. LMM. He's everywhere. <laughs> he is. That's Lynn Manuel Miranda for anyone who is. Uh, Only people listening not, to this know that. Not, you know, a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we mentioned, Chris, that you really haven't been in the podcast this series. So I want you, because Reagan and I didn't talk about this. So before we get into your sermon from Sunday, mm-hmm. could you share with us a little bit about how these passages were chosen for this series? Our process is that you, so people know, is that you and me and... Reagan or you, Reagan and I all kind of get in a room and map out the year. So we, we look at the the calendar and say, okay, uh, we look at the lectionary or uh, typically I'll do a little pre-work and think about what I've got in mind and I'll present it to you guys and we'll bounce ideas off and tweak or change or whatever. 
And so we knew like after Christmas, I feel like the January series needs to be kind of topical or something, something compelling that's outside of the normal liturgical stuff. You know what I mean? So For Advent sure. has always got a certain theme. Lent tends to be kind of a heavier theme. Summer tends to be lighter. And so um, we talked about doing troubling passages. So it had already been on the docket for like a four week series on troubling passages. So um, then we start thinking about what those passages might be. And so I had taught Genesis in the uh, fall and skipped right over Genesis six, that weird <laughs> angels. And, so you're making a list. <laughs> so yeah. So I'm like, oh, I actually got to run a list. Um, and then Reagan had mentioned the Elisha and the bears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, that's kind of fun. I don't yeah. know if she maybe – Scott that, likes it apparently. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, so. Yes, yes. Maybe even in that meeting. I think so. I think that was her example yeah. of like, what about this passage? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then you had done a book study yeah. on like, Jesus's troubling words. words of Jesus. So mm-hmm. one of the – like the la- next week, the last yeah. ones is there, so one, of, one of those. And then um, I, I don't remember exactly – I mean – Theologically, I would say the Holy Spirit kind of is in that whole process. It's That's a, true. It's an art, not a science. But one Psalm 137, I didn't choose it because it's in the lectionary. I've actually discovered it was in the lectionary after we had cho- after I'd chosen it. Most then, psalms are, right? Um, there's a psalm like every week. Yeah, there's a psalm every week over three years. But that, yeah, I mean, I guess that's right. It's yeah. a lot of them. But I think I might have left that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have other choices, right? Why would you pick the yeah. psalm? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So, uh, and then process is, you know, we all, I, I throw out the possibilities, we talk about it and we settle on it. So it's, it's collaborative. Um, it's also spirit led. I, I do believe that. Um, and then the other thing is because so much of the, of the calendar year is new Testament focused. I like on any kind of series where we can lean, we can go heavier on old Testament. I, I like to do that. And so, um, you know, we could have picked four from the New Testament very easily. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Okay, cool. I think that's helpful for all of us to kind of know that kind of process. So a few weeks ago, Reagan and I talked about the quadrilateral, mostly from our personal perspectives mm-hmm. and experiences. So I'd love for you to kind of explain to us how you first came to understand it and that impact it's had on you. Because you didn't grow up Methodist. So you did right. learn about the quadrilateral probably later than me, at least. Yeah. Is that a flex? Yeah, I'm very young. <laughs> um, yeah, so when we first started visiting Arapahoe United Methodist Church, just down the road, um, we we went because uh, Whitney had gone to a, a Methodist preschool. It's the only connection we had to the Methodist Church. And they, they she didn't really grow up in the church, but she'd gone to Methodist preschool at First Ann Arbor. And then she has, uh, so her sister-in-law has, has like Methodist preachers in their family. So she had this favorable view of Methodism. So we went and uh, just based on that very kind of loose connection and loved it. So when it became clear that that would be a good landing place for us, her coming from kind of an unchurched background and me coming from a very Catholic background, um, then we decided we needed to learn about the church. And so um, the way I recall it is Arapaho is not a – I mean it's a big church by Methodist standards, 1,100 members or something like that, but small by – Arches, our local right. standards, you know. And so I'm pretty sure there was only one other couple at the time who was considering joining the church who did not, who was not Methodist. So the way I remember it is, and this is a true story, um, 
Marty Soper, who mm-hmm. I referenced in the, in the sermon, um, <laughs> set us up in her office with a TV and video cassettes of Will Willimon talking about the Methodist church. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Ironically, my first appointment would be that office, literally that office. Yeah. Um, as associate there. So, uh, so Will Willimon, Will Willimon was talking about the history of the Methodist church. And I was really compelled by the fact that, that John Wesley was so concerned with, with social concerns. Like he, he, you know, he preached to alcoholics. Um, he preached to the poor and I thought, man, okay. That really resonated with my Catholic background in the Catholic church has a long history of social engagement. And, um, but then there was also this piece about how Methodists think about scripture. And, um, like I've, I have a very, in some ways, very systematic brain. And so when, when Willimon laid out this notion that like, it's not just tradition, this is what I was used to. It's not just the Bible. I had plenty of Baptist uh, relatives for whom, you know, it's only the Bible, but this, you know, this four, these four sources and criteria is what the discipline says. I was totally captivated. And the notion that we did not have to check our brains at the door when we come to the United Methodist Church uh, was so awesome. And Jack, who was a senior pastor, so Marty and Jack were mar- are married. They're both retired now. Um, he was very intellectual. I mean, his preaching style was very – I mean, his Bible studies were sem- seminary-level stuff. Um, he was kind of a teaching preacher like Hamilton, similar, which is not coincidentally kind of how I turned out. Um, but it, it just really resonated with me. And I, I love the quadrilateral. There are, uh, there are, so it's come under some criticism. There are, um, some of the conservative churches. So like the Wesleyan covenant, covenant association, there's this, there's conservative branch that's probably going to split off at some point over the question of human sexuality. That's kind of a, probably a separate podcast series, I think. Um, but there, some people struggle with the notion that there are four sources we don't say that tradition, reason, and experience are equally important with scripture, <clears throat> but I think we're incredibly intellectually honest in that everyone interprets it, and here's the way we're going to interpret it. And to me, that makes all the sense in the world. Wesley himself never used the phrase Wesleyan quadrilateral. No, that's an outlier term. That's the critique. And outlier was a professor at uh, Perkins in the... Um, seventies, I guess. Yeah. So and I would I mean, argue he picks quadrilateral <clears throat> because he thinks scripture is the longest, the longer end, you know, they're not all equal right. or it's not a square, right, right? but yeah, we can always pick holes in that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 I, so quadrilateral, the, the discipline actually doesn't use that term anymore, no. but it, it does talk about four sources and criteria. And I just think it's a really helpful. And to me, I'll use the phrase again, intellectually honest way of approaching the canon. So that when you get these these passages, like we're talking about in this series, you've got a way to make sense of them in their own context and then uh, interpret them for how they can be meaningful in our context. The If we're, we're raising our boys in, as Christians in the Methodist Church, right, obviously, I want them to be equipped <laughs> to come across a passage of scripture and not have their faith rocked because they can't see God in that. Absolutely. So. Okay, cool. Thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we haven't really touched on this week's sermon, so we should probably do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Human and divine. <clears throat> yes. So Psalm 137, mm-hmm. could you give us some context? So you did a little bit on Sunday, but I'm just wondering kind of the 
environment, this situation that these Israelites are finding themselves in? Yeah. So this is a perfect, so to me, I didn't get into all this because we didn't have time. So this would be kind of cutting room floor stuff. Uh, lots of people say David wrote the Psalms. Well, David certainly contributed to the Psalms, but Psalm 137 was written centuries after David. So uh, it was written during the exile for sure. Uh, and the exile was the period after the Babylonian conquest of Judah. Most traumatic event in the Old Testament for our faith ancestors. From the exile on, I think this is correct. I think it's still true. More um, uh, people in the Jewish faith have lived outside of the Holy Land hmm. than in the Holy Land. I mean, it's like uh, totally uh, a paradigm shifting event <laughs> because before the exile was believed God lived in the temple and then the temple was raised to the ground. I mean, so then the theologians in ancient Israel who were inspired and brilliant had to figure out a way to make sense of our faith in, in a totally different context. And they did it. But Psalm 137 particularly is a Psalm of community lament about everything that they had lost. And the situation they found themselves in was that the, the Babylonian, um, uh, captors or the Babylonian people were kind of making fun of them. Like, ah, oh, sing us, you got a big tough God. Do you sing us your song? Sing us your God songs. Well, where's your God now? That kind of thing, you know, or at least that's their perception. Yeah. And so the psalmist says, you know what? I'm hanging up my heart. I'm not singing those songs for you. But then he says, if I ever think anything's more important than Jerusalem and the temple and my faith, may my hand wither and my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Just, like just gut-wrenchingly heartbreaking. <laughs> right. Because I think you and I understand the hand and the tongue analogy, but like for a psalmist, those impl implications are really heavy. Mm -hmm. Like that is how you portray psalms right. is with your hand making music right. and with your mouth. Right. I mean, and so for – right, Exactly. And I th it's easy to skim over those, like to think that's poetry. But if you really kind of get underneath the poetry. Right. And uh, so all the way through Psalm, verse 6 of the psalm, no problem. Straightforward lament. <laughs> and then yep. verses 7 to 9, he, uh, it's a curse. And he says, um, I pray that y'all get yours. And then the, the most disturbing verse, and it really is... I think it's pretty stark to hear it read out loud in worship. I read it twice and I felt uncomfortable each time I did. Yeah. Uh, looking at kids in the, in the congregation specifically, I mean, yeah. the adults. So happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's some heavy stuff. The common English says smashing them. Yeah, that's right. And that was, I mean, listen, humanity's capacity for cruelty is it knows no bounds. And uh, this is not an ancient thing. In World War II, when uh, the Japanese conquered Nanking, that is the way they often killed the babies of the people they conquered. Civilians, always civilians, obviously. So um, this is not ancient, ancient history. Unfortunately. This, this is our capacity for cruelty. Um, and so the question is, <laughs> what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. It, so, um, 
the easy answer would be, really? No editor? No monk anywhere along the line didn't just scratch out those last three verses? At least the last verse? Y'all had to keep that for real? Right? I mean, so then the question is, now what? Yeah. So do you think a lot of maybe pastors or maybe just the lay person reading this, they would be quick to excuse that kind of language or to automatically like denounce that type of violence. Do you think that's like an instinctual thing we have? We want to explain it and tidy it up. And is there a risk in doing that? So I th- that's a really, it's a good question. So I think there are, I think there's a risk in several approaches. Okay. I think one theologically, um, one theological cop out yeah. <laughs> is to skip everything we don't like. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Cause it's I mean, easy. Everyone would agree that this is terrible, but then maybe you skip the stuff you probably need to be listening to. Right. <laughs> right. And we'll, next week we're going to talk about one of those ones of Jesus, which are really challenging, but probably is worth paying attention to. Um, so the cop, the theological cop out is to just pretend it's not there. Um, I actually think that uh, a more troubling approach to me, and so this is, um, we tend to be pretty protective of kids. So I think most people would dismiss that verse, right? But then there, what about Jericho? So the fall of Jericho, when God, I'm using air quotes, (laughs) according to the author, orders the murder of men, women, and children. Right. This is not a unique example. Right. This is a graphic one. Correct. But does it really ultimately matter if you're stabbing them or smashing them against a rock? Well, maybe a little bit. Probably Noah's Ark? Right? I don't know. So then the then it becomes the uh, the rationalization. Well, that's the way it was in the ancient world, hmm. and God knew that. And, and, I, and that's – I mean, honestly, I feel like that's worse. Right. <laughs> because the way I read those texts is a human being – um, and this is this would make some of our fellow Christians very uncomfortable to hear me say this, preacher say this. <clears throat> but I think it's a human being rationalizing their behavior by saying God told us to do it. And the reason I think that is because of what I talked about in the sermon. Like it is that is that is inconsistent with the revelation of Scripture as a whole, and it certainly is inconsistent with the revelation of Jesus. But we don't believe that Jesus is inconsistent with the. <laughs> Like the revelation of Jesus is not inconsistent with the revelation of the Old Testament. So the the thing that we have to rely on um, is tradition, experience, and reason uh, to help guide us in parsing out what in here is hum- humanity and what in here is divinity. And, the, and while uh, infanticide is a no-brainer for all but the worst human beings, how about letting women preach? How about slavery that's not denounced? I mean, you know, there are much more serious issues <laughs> where we have to parse out what's cultural context and what is truly necessary for salvation. Yeah. And so for me, those last verses, they're still part of that lament, right? The psalmist is crying out to God saying, can you do this stuff? Mm-hmm. God isn't saying, hey, I'm going to do this right. to these babies. Right. It's what the psalmist right. wants in retribution right, right. of these acts that have been acts of oppression that have been 
done upon the Israelites. So lamenting is found throughout scripture. You mentioned this. We have an entire book about lamentations right. in the Old Testament. Like it is so a part, especially of the Israelites' identity. And I feel like today in society, we're not super great at making space or time for lamenting. Mm. Why do you think that is? And how could we be better at it? <laughs> That's a really good question. What do you think? How would you answer that? Uh, so there is, I would argue, a stigma about expressing grief loudly. A thousand percent. Did you talk about this yesterday in your summary? Uh, I, so my kind of take on this, those last verses in particular, um, just so you know, as the listener who maybe didn't hear my sermon, is that um, we are gifted this opportunity to see inside someone else's soul, this deep, dark place. Um, And while maybe we don't have those thoughts of dashing babies um, or whatever verbiage is used, we do have deep darkness at times within us. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean that we have a God who listens to us in those moments? And the God that remembers, Mm -hmm. maybe a God that isn't going to do exactly what we ask for, um, but that is with us in those hard times. And it is, it's, it's not a prayer for God to do that. Right. Right. It's, it's saying, man, it would just be great <laughs> if we could do this to these so-and-sos yep. who are teasing us right now. Um, what I would love <laughs> is a commentary where God would say, listen, your feelings are legit. Uh, I'm with you in your grief. Let's talk about the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. let's talk about that last verse. Right. Could you say that out loud one more time? just so you hear what you're saying. It's like a therapy session. You really mean that, right? (laughs) I mean, I wish we could get that kind of God's commentary on it. But yeah, that's that's a really good take. But I think you're right. I think we're uncomfortable with with, uh, grief in general. Um, You know, in in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Hmm. And so many people stop that interpretation halfway through. They think, oh, if I have grief, I must not have hope. Exactly. No, they think I shouldn't grieve. <laughs> they think I shouldn't grieve because they're going to go to heaven. Like, yeah, have you heard this? Like, yeah, I mean, you've heard this kind of. Yeah, I kind of so ignore you, it. <laughs> don't, don't be sad. Don't be sad because they're in a better place. Right. Well, no, they're in a different place and they're in a wonderful place, but with their families in a pretty good place too. So I think the the reason, uh, you know, Paul comes under a lot of criticism, um, I, but I, my theology is pretty Pauline. He, he is saying uh, hope is a balm for grief. B A L M. B A L M. Yeah, it's a callback to the sermon. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I do think that men, and maybe you've experienced this, they um, it's less acceptable for them to show oh, these yeah, emotions. Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like women just throughout history are like, oh, emotional, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reasons mm-hmm. you can insinuate. Um, but I've experienced, especially working with youth, that sometimes um, they need to know it's okay for them to be upset. It's okay to cry out. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you speak these deep, dark hurts, it's not going to make you a bad person. Mm-hmm. Instead, it kind of gives you permission to move forward. Mm-hmm. Not to move on, but just to move in a new way. Mm-hmm. And if your deep, dark thoughts include homicide... Probably go to a therapist. Not probably. Absolutely <laughs> go to a therapist or come to Chris Stout. And he can who talk, was, you, talk you through you. next steps. Let's talk about the Bible. And then here's a great therapist you can see. Uh, any pastor that doesn't reference you out 
um, with those thoughts is a red flag. Don't trust. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Pastoral care 101. If you want to talk about God and Jesus all day long, do you want therapy? Refer, refer, refer. Absolutely. Right? Yep. That's my best friend. Um, I can, preachers can't fix all of your problems. I don't, we don't pretend to be able to. Mm. Um, so there are professionals out there. Important ones. But that, you know, when you, the thing about this, the book of the Psalms is that I'm, I'm not sure there are very many uh, human emotions that are not spoken in the Psalms. <clears throat> not not 100% of them probably, but it's a pretty broad range. Which is powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't sure. get a lot of that in the New Testament. Right. At least not those. You get commentary on emotions, right. but you don't always hear that. Right, right. For sure. And I think it's because the New Testament authors knew we'd already covered that. We've got a whole book about that. Yeah, they know it very well. Okay, so in we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit. In your sermon, you reference recently finishing um, a biography about Julius Caesar. Yeah. What is the most interesting thing you learned about Caesar? <laughs> so somehow in my all of my years of education, that so ancient history is not something that really that I learned very much. Did you like, did you have much ancient history mm. either in high school or in college? World history felt very overwhelming to me in high school because I felt like we were starting from the beginning to the end in Mm -hmm. two semesters. So I'm sure there was some ancient stuff sprinkled in, but not that I paid attention Mm -hmm. to probably. So I I was homeschooled and my mom did a uh, whole summer on ancient history. And it was just special because we did ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, Greece, and we did the whole summer was that. I mummified an orange. It was great. Interesting. So we moved between my freshman and sophomore years in Maryland. And um, just coincidentally, the the district that I moved from and to reversed U.S. history and world history. <laughs> you so missed it. I, I had two consecutive years of U.S. history. So I know U.S. history pretty well and no years of world history. And I took two years of Latin when I was in uh, high school. And so um, – there is some cultural stuff you learn there, but I, I didn't. I didn't know that Julius Caesar was basically the beginning of the end of the Republic. I didn't really understand why he was assassinated. I didn't know that crossing the Rubicon was when he started the Civil War, basically in Rome. Like, I, there's a whole lot of stuff huh, I didn't know about Caesar. Etu Brute. That's that, when he. Well, that's so that's that's. I know uh, that's Shakespeare's take on it. Precisely. Okay. Yeah, he probably yes, and he probably so, didn't say exactly that, but yes. My understanding of Caesar is probably through Shakespeare. Probably should, or. Yeah. <laughs> but even but even Julius Caesar is more about Mark Anthony and Brutus than it is, it is about Caesar. Right? He makes a very very yeah, yeah, brief yeah. appearance. Yeah. So I some I, I didn't I probably knew at some point that Caesar said I came I saw I conquered but I didn't I didn't realize that was in the context of the Civil War. I mean I just learned a whole lot. Now it took me forever to get through it. You assumed it was a very large book. It was, but you listened to it, right? Twenty-four does hours. Count as a reading. It does. <laughs> my memory's pretty good. <laughs> Everybody here agrees on that. Yes. This is a point of contention with me and my friends. No, no, no. I think it's. Uh, I mean, given. Yes, I think it's a thousand. Absolutely percent counts. But it, I didn't. <laughs> I started listening to it when I was putting up Christmas lights in early November, and it, that's how long it took me to finish it. It was. I was glad I did. But the tie into the sermon was that uh, it was a reminder just how cruel the ancient world was. And it was always the civilians who suffered, you know. Yeah, so I found it very interesting that we don't have a lot of records 
about the Babylonian exile when I was researching. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is from the Hebrew Mm -hmm. scripture and that's kind of it. There's no like historical documents, even from the Babylonians Mm -hmm. perspective, Mm -hmm. because I really wanted to get a feel of what the Israelites were going through in that journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to make sure I was speaking um, from an informed place. And I found that to be very interesting Mm -hmm. and kind of disappointing. (laughs) Right. Because we have to look to kind of things like Caesar, these other instances and see how society was during that time Mm -hmm. and then assume that it was similar. Right. 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 Yeah. Here. And that's part of dealing with scripture, (laughs) right? That's this whole, whole point of using the quadrilateral, using other resources to kind of give us um, depth and to give us a better understanding. And context. Context is so crucial. It's very helpful if we're going to interpret a text for our own place and time for us to understand its original intent and context, because it like uh, Roy Heller, who I talk about a lot says, you can't just, you can't just rip something out of this book 2000 years ago or longer and slap it onto my current experience and have it mean, be meaningful necessarily. No, there's the Holy spirit at work in that. And there's, some contextual stuff that we need to understand. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is irrelevant for us. We can still find relevance and comparisons and practical ways to incorporate it in our life. Because um, I think that's sometimes the argument too. It's, it's like, oh, we're so far removed from the Old Testament. It's just not even mm-hmm. a part of this life. And I think, so for me, growing up reading the Old Testament, I really struggled um, with balancing the violence and vengeance that I see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like that you've kind of given us examples of ways to read that. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, he, he this is the, the, to me. So the first two weeks of the series were just kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, nobody, <laughs> fun re- for some, <laughs> nobody reads, I mean, nobody even reads Genesis six, let alone thinks that has any major bearing on their salvation. Nobody right. really reads the crazy story about Elisha and, I mean, whatever. It's easy to dismiss those stories. Yeah. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But the the Psalms have a different kind of emotional punch. And in this case, they bring up something that is a a theme in the Old Testament where – and this is where we often uh, don't do the Old Testament justice by saying that, you know, the New Testament is about love and grace. The Old Testament is about vengeance and retribution and stuff like that, right? I mean, you you hear that. You you even hear – uh, people think God is more about judgment in the Old Testament and is about grace in the New Testament, which, of course, is not true. Right? No, and hearing God that is intimidating and influential. To say that it's not true? Well, to say that, yes. Well, to say that, oh, the God of the Old Testament is full of vengeance. So, like, if you've never read the Old Testament and you hear that, yeah. you go in with you this preconceived yeah, notion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you come across one of these passages and you're like, oh, there, there's that Old Testament God. Right. So what do we do with that? I I think we have to read it. Like the whole canon has to be read in light of its overarching theme. It just has to be. Everyone does this on some level. Some traditions are just more intentional about it. If you were to tell a Jewish friend of yours that the Old Testament is just the the God of wrath, they would look at you like you had two heads. Like, what are you talking about? Yes. (laughs) I have seen this happen. Right. I mean, like that. Oh my God, that is so unfair to an entire tradition. It's not because, I mean, and plus we have to remember that Jesus came out of this tradition. So like, that's not, anyway, I think, um, clearly we have a, a different perspective than our Jewish brothers and sisters because of the revelation of Christ, but it's, it's not an inconsistent revelation is what I would say about that. 
and I, I think there are plenty, like if you talk, I, I, it would be a fascinating conversation probably to talk about um, the fall of Jericho with different types of Jewish pastors and congregants. So a Reformed Jew would have a very different view of that, probably, maybe. That's right. a, maybe that's overstated. That's not fair. It'd be clear to, it'd be great to be able to talk to a, an Orthodox Jew, a Reformed Jew, a, a Hasidic Jew uh, about how they would interpret those texts. Because I, I actually don't know what the distinctions would be. But I do know that the overarching theme of the book is God's love and grace and commitment and relationship with God's people, which includes all of us. All of it. Mm -hmm. All of us and all of mm -hmm. scripture. Okay. We're going to get a little um, deep into this Chalcedonian. Yeah. Chalcedonian Chalcedonian. Chalcedonian. Uh, so it's interesting. How uh, do you pronounce it? Well, it depends on who you look up on the internet, but it's Chalcedon. Okay. Yeah. My instinct is to say Chalcedonian, but my instinct is often incorrect. No, you're right. So you say that scripture is kind of like the Chalcedonian yeah. definition of Jesus, both human yeah. and both divine. What do you mean when you say that? So I think I, I do say in the... You say kind of. Yeah. I say it's probably overstating it just a little bit. Absolutely. Because it's not... We'll give you some grace in that. Well, and the scholar who suggested it said the same thing, but her her point was... And I think it was um, – love when it's a female scholar. Yeah, yeah. It was her. a she. And I, I, the only reason that I didn't specifically name her is because I couldn't put my hand on the book and I didn't want to – I respect that. I didn't want to like miss – I think it was Sarah um, Lerner. Do you know that name? Hmm. I think she's at um, – uh, like I, I read this in my very first year of seminary, so it's been a long time ago now. Right. And I've not reread that book. But anyway, the point is – that there are things that are entirely about our salvation and then there are things that are more about social context. <laughs> and being clear about that is really important when we're trying to decide what's most important as we live out our life together. So, um, I, you know, that I know that I keep coming back to the whole ordination of women, the whole subject of the ordination of women. I think that's kind of the perfect microcosm where the Methodist approach to um, the Christian life, Christian theology is – it drives us to a different conclusion than the vast majority of the Christian world. <laughs> and uh, it, we take it for granted because it's been all of our lifetimes, everybody around this table right now, that we've ordained women. Duh. Now, does that mean we're where we need to be with that in terms of – women in authority and women at, in big pulpits and all that kind of, of course not, but it's been a thing at least for all of our lifetimes. But that's a very short period of time in the grand sweep, sweep of Christian history. So what we say is the places in scripture where, uh, where the Bible, I'm using air quotes because the Bible is a collection of books. So this library of sacred material, um, where it seems to argue against women in authority, pastoral authority, we would say where that's true, and there's not that many places, but it's a product of its place and time. And we, through our reason and experience, know that that doesn't make any sense, that my, the call of God on my life is no different than the call of God on your life or on Reagan's life or Jan Davis's life. I mean, it, pick, you know, any pastor, right? I mean, we had women in leadership here for a long time. So Alexander Robinson's another one, right? So um, 
you have to be really clear about way, the way you read the Bible to come to that conclusion. And you could ha- – those same kind of arguments affect our conversation about um, uh, slavery, obviously, to predate the question about women, divorce, human sexuality. And so having the framework in our heads about the way we interpret Scripture helps us to come to conclusions that don't keep us stuck in a past that we probably need to move past. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think what you're talking about is unique to the United Methodist Church. It's why I love being a Methodist. Right. But I would say also that we probably have people in our congregation who have varying opinions on all of this. And they still come here, which there's, that's beautiful for me. Um, Because I think that just demonstrates that we can all still learn even when we have these different understandings, especially about scripture. Right. I hope most people in our congregation are cool with a female pastor at this stage in the game, but you never know. I mean, so when I was in, okay, I, I think, I don't know any who aren't, but I can tell you when I was in Sherman, um, I I went to Sherman in 2013 that year we, uh, we, we made the district, the district superintendent and I made the intentional decision to bring a woman on staff in an ordained role. It was the first time that had happened. Wow. There were people who left the church. Wow. <laughs> the person who followed me in Sherman was another woman who had been in leadership here, Denise Peckham. But that's eight years ago, nine years ago. <laughs> so while the United Methodist Church has, that's been a settled issue for 60 years, 60 something years, right? Do you know that off the top of your head? I thought it was 35, but you keep saying in our lifetime. And so I'm no, it's to, definitely, it's definitely 60. And it's so, 65 or 67 yeah. somewhere there. Uh, Cut my ignorance. Not every church is there, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before. There aren't even that many Methodist churches around us now that have a female preaching every Sunday, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so just that voice is important. And I know we're kind of off topic with it, but we're not because we're, this is like the, this is exactly the topic. It's fully human and it's fully divine. It's not um, like we we do not believe that it, and this is what I said yesterday in the sermon, we don't believe it fell out of the sky as a fully completed work written by the hand of God. Right. And there are plenty of people who think of the Bible that way. Yes. Not out of malice. Sometimes their t- church is teaching them that, but sometimes it's ignorance, like just not knowing. Right. And so uh, it's it's... It is not a threatening thing to read something in the Bible and say, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and then think through exactly what we're, what we think that means for that time and for our time. Yeah. And I will say, I think that is what we are striving to do in doing the sermon series is we're not trying to stand up there and tell you, this is how you should interpret the scripture. Mm-hmm. We're saying, Hey, this is a scripture that's hard. That has all these different interpretations Here's one opinion, but also use your head. Think. We want we want to encourage that and to foster that in this community, not to create differing opinions that um, cut at each other's throats, but instead to see that beauty that comes from all these different lenses mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Okay. I want to read a portion of your sermon. You um, preached, we have to recognize that this beautiful, life-giving, salvation offering centerpiece of our theology and of our faith 
has a fair amount of humanity in it, with a fair amount of humanity's full range of emotions, sometimes even the unhealthy, if understandable ones. And for me, friends, I find that to be comforting and affirming, Mm -hmm. that God used imperfect human beings, just like me, just like you, to write our most important text. And that all, I mean... It's true. And it feels like you're giving us permission to be human here. Yeah. Is that your intent to kind of claim our humanity? And our authority as, as a kind of independent moral and theological agents. Like the Holy Spirit is with the person in the pew every bit as much as the Holy Spirit is with me. Every bit as much. And this is the thing that I think people struggle to accept because it sounds kind of crazy. Every bit as much as the Holy Spirit was with the person who wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> now, we believe that these texts are different than something that I would write, right? They function in a different way. Um, they, they have become sacred writings for us in a different way. But that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is with me in reading it any less than it was with the, Holy, <laughs> the, the person in writing it. And that's the way – that's like when we say that, the, um, that our, the- our theology, our faith is – vivified in our experience. That's what we mean. It's lived out when we fully claim our like theological personhood. You know, I mean, that's a big, big deal. So, and, and I even said here, like, I wanted to say, don't take my word for it. Jesus says so, <laughs> right? Jesus in the gospel of John says, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you to guide you into all the truth. Yeah. Now we do it together because you don't want some crazy idea. Like, oh, it's in the Bible. Happy are those who dash, you know, like the whole, oh, that means we can kill babies. That's not what that, right? I mean, so we have to do it in community for sure. And it's not like anything goes. But it does mean that that idea that God is with us is so powerful. That Pneumatology is the branch of theology. So it's the theology of the Holy Spirit. It really is a, it's a, a very life-giving thing. And the fact that, that um, God works through somebody who has that kind of thought, <laughs> even somebody who has that kind of thought from the midst of their grief and anger, it's just, it's kind of awesome because that same God works through us. Yeah. And I think what you spoke about is the key is that the Holy Spirit is present in scripture and present with us today. And we have to read it. We have to read it yeah. uh, prayerfully and through the Holy Spirit. Love it. Okay. So we're going to look at Luke <laughs> yeah. next week. Yeah. And another hard-hitting question. And then, looking ahead, we're going to do three weeks on Ruth. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty excited about that. That's my girl. So, And then it's Lent, and man, we're off to, towards Easter. I so. cannot believe it. So, okay, y'all. Listen, it's good to be back on Off Script. Stephanie, thank you for uh, being a guest host the past couple of weeks. It's great to be in conversation with you. Uh, this week, there's going to be some weather, it looks like, maybe later in the week. So... If you actually, by the time this drops, it may, it may even be um, in the snowing. Midst. Yeah. Could <laughs> read be. this snuggled by the fire. Right, exactly. You might be listening to this by yeah. the fire with some hot chocolate. Or it may not even happen. I'm such a skeptic about weather. It's Texas weather. You never can tell. It is, it's either going to be 80 or 20 and icing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, regardless, if, we're, if there's any kind of a change to the church schedule, which would include Broadway Cafe, by the way, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be Friday night, oh, Saturday, man. Sunday, yeah, Saturday, Saturday. 
but we'll be texting and we'll be updating social media, so pay attention to that. Um, it is always good to spend some time with you during the week. I hope you all have a terrific rest of the week, and we'll be with you again next week for our next episode of Offscript. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Offscript. It was hosted by Reverend Chris Dowd, produced by Ashley Danner as a part of the Christ United Podcast Ministries. You can visit cumc.com backslash podcasts in order to see all of the series we have available. Like, subscribe, and follow us so that you don't miss a single episode. Thank you for supporting us. Have a great week.